0: Well, good morning, IBC family. Uh, I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. In 1 John chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 13, and we'll actually read to the end of the chapter and really the end of the letter. Um, as you're turning there, I want to just say a couple things. Uh, first of all, um, much like what Pastor Tom said at the beginning of service in regards to our brother John MacArthur, uh, he will very much be missed. Uh, Many uh, that you knew him, uh, if you had ever listened to John MacArthur pray, you would make this conclusion. You would be listening and going, wow, it's as if John is actually talking to God. Prayer is that, right? It's just oftentimes our prayer life might be more... uh, described as we're writing a letter to God. We start off our prayer by saying, dear God. Or or we, 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 we kind of speak somewhat abstractly, but when you listen to John MacArthur pray, I mean, it was, you felt like he ushered you into the throne room of God. And he prayed with expectation. It was incredible. I mean, he would pray and you'd be like, I think God's going to answer this one, because he's not praying with like, well, maybe God if you get around to it. No, he was, he prayed with confidence and boldness, and it was an honor and a privilege, and I've never forgotten, I know many of you probably can attest to the same thing, but he was a man who had a, a deep trust in the Lord and a man who had an intimate walk with Jesus, and you could see that spilling out in all aspects of his life. Most especially in his prayer life. He will be missed, but we also celebrate. We celebrate the fact that he is with the one he served for so many years. And that is something to celebrate. 1 John chapter 5, <clears throat> starting in verse 13. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, I pray that right now as we continue in a spirit of worship that you would give us receptive ears, a willing heart. Father, we know that we've been going through this letter that John wrote long ago to Many of the churches in Asia Minor at the time, and there's been a lot that we 've been able to extract and to to take away and to learn to be encouraged by, to be exhorted from, but I pray even as we come to an end that that father, it would just be the beginning that we wouldn 't just put a period to our, this letter, but Father, that this would begin to be lived out in the most profound and practical of ways. So we ask that you would bless our time here this morning, Lord. Again, apart from you, we know that we can do nothing. Anything done apart from your Spirit's empowerment and enablement is done in vain. So please, Spirit, show up. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. A while back, you might recall that I threw out this really uh, confusing term called epistemology. And uh, that's not to, sit, to make you think that I'm really smart because I know these words that no one uses in common day vernacular. But uh, epistemology is actually a, a philosophical term. Uh, it's a, a grammatical term that means it's really the science of how we know what we know. It means this is how we know things. How we know what we know. And we talked about that. You know, we know certain things in life based on a variety of different factors. We know things from first-hand experience. We know things from, uh, from information that has been passed down to us. We know things because uh, of what has been told or what we have studied or what has been kind of reaffirmed over and over as true and so epistemology is the science of how we know what we know. And you might recall as we've gone through this letter of 1 John that John has repeatedly come back to this idea of this is how we know. This is how we know. We can know certain spiritual truths. And John, is, his effort, his, his intent among many themes in his letter is to, is to remind us of what we Can know and what we should know. We can know that we know God. We can know that it is the last hour. We can know the truth. We can know that Jesus came to take away sins. We can know that we abide in God and that God abides in us. We can know the Spirit of God. We can know that we belong to God. We can know the love of God. Again, John, over again, is saying, this is how we know. This is how we know. And actually five times in his letters, he says, I write these things so that you may know. In this passage alone, we know, we know, we know. In other words, we might conclude it this way. The Christian faith is an I know so faith, right? It's not the I hope so faith. It's not the the faith that says, I think it might be. It is, this is what you can know. And so John concludes his letter with five spiritual truths, really reminders of what we know. The first spiritual truth that we can know, and I don't have a little clicker with me, so thank you. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that. You can know with absolute certainty and with, and with no doubt that you have eternal life. Now, in contrast to every faith system in the world, both in history past as well as hi, is, is human history present, every faith system in the world, every belief system that exists has some degree or element of we can't quite know. And yet the Bible teaches us what, we, what John repeats over and again is that we can know, especially we can know that we have eternal life. How do we know that we have eternal life? Well, John kind of gives us, he re, over and again, he reminds us three different ways in which we know. We know we have eternal life because we believe in the biblical Jesus. We believe rightly about Jesus. We put our trust in the biblical Jesus, not the Jesus in our own making. We believe in the name of Jesus Christ, and we trust in the name, all that that kind of that name implies, right? We believe that Jesus is God. We believe and confess that Jesus is our Savior and only hope of salvation We believe and we surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. One of the ways we know we have eternal life is because we believe in the the Jesus that the Bible describes. But there's a second test in which we may know. We know we have eternal life because we believe in Jesus, but we also obey Jesus. You see, it's one thing to believe in the biblical Jesus And as James points out to us very clearly, the demons know, they don't trust, but they know the biblical Jesus, but that does not redeem them. And so what what stands out from just an understanding or a right belief about Jesus is also wrapped up in our obedience to Jesus. John says this in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments... Is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So we must know Jesus, but we must be obedient to Jesus. In fact, what you really believe about Jesus is reflected in your obedience to Jesus. But there's a third test or our, our way in which we can know for certain in the deepest parts of our heart that we have that we have truly been saved to eternal life, and that is that we show love for one another. In every chapter, John highlights the importance of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. For example, in chapter two, verses nine and 10, John says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever, abides, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Stumbling. In chapter three, verse fourteen, John says, "We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death." I think it's it's kind of an important. Test for us because, again, it, there's a common theme, or, a, and this isn't maybe common for us in here at all times, but it is not uncommon for some people to think that I love Jesus, but I want nothing to do with Jesus' family. I love Jesus, but the church, well, I got other words for that. They, they usually come in four, four letters. I love Jesus, or I think Jesus is awesome, but man, his church is a real piece of work. And so I stay away, far away. And yet, what the Bible teaches us is this. When you chose Jesus, you also inherited his family when you came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, in a sense, when you came to the Father and were reconciled into right relationship with the Father, you were also reconciled into an eternal relationship with the Father's family. So look around, brothers and sisters. Whether you like it or not, we're together for the long haul. Not just in this life, but forever forever. Thank you. (laughs) All three of you that are excited about that. (laughs) I'm so thankful for God's patience. He said he promises also in scripture and the work that he began in us, he will bring it to completion. One day we are actually all going to genuinely celebrate the fact that we belong to the family of God even if it's not quite how we feel in the moment. One day, Revelation 5, the first universal church service, we all gather and we're not nitpicking. We're not critiquing. We are absolutely undone by being in the presence of Jesus. And it's glorious. We know one spiritual truth for certain, that is that we can have eternal life. But there's another spiritual truth that John tells us we can know, and secondly, it's we can know that God answers our prayers. God answers our prayers. Remember back what John says in chapter 3, verse 22, and I'm telling you these passages if you want to just quickly flip over, but you don't have to. In chapter 3, verse 22, John says, whatever we ask of God, we receive from Him, In other words, when we talk through that 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 passage, the takeaway, or one of the takeaway truths that you and I are to kind of come to grips with or believe once again is that God wants to bless you. He loves to give you good things as a perfect heavenly father. He desires to give you what you ask for. At the same time, there are conditions. In other words, it's not like a kid to a child going, like, man, I asked mom and dad anything I want. And they just give it to me, whether it's good for me or not. No, that's not a good father. And so there are conditions to our confident asking. And the conditions, as John spells out in verse 22 of chapter 3 says, we will receive from him whatever we ask. Here's the condition. Because we obey him and do the things that please him. In other words, the confidence that you and I have in God granting our request is contingent on two conditions. We obey Him and we do the things that please Him. But John, actually, in our passage this morning, raises a third condition of our asking. Look at verse 14 and 15 for me, real quick. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything, According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Notice that John emphasizes a third prerequisite, right? A third condition to our asking, or a third condition to God answering our prayers. He says, if we ask according to his will. You see, brothers and sisters, God wants us to come to him like a child, right? He says, come to me like a child, and there's so many different parallels and analogies as to why he uses children as kind of this prototype visual example of how we are to approach him, relate to him, love on him, and ask anything of him because he's like, hey, children have, are kind of unfiltered, persistent voice boxes, Right? And even though you might say something, that doesn't mean they receive that. They're like, no, 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 you obviously didn't hear me, mom and dad, so let me just ask you again. And they'll say it until sometimes we go, fine. And maybe we're not supposed to, because you're supposed to hold your ground, right? But sometimes we just kind of give in. Really, the scripture tells us, ask persistently, Matthew 7, right? Right? Be that persistent widow, because your Father in heaven wants to give you good things. And at the same time, our confidence in God answering our prayers is that we ask according to his will. George Mueller, I'm not sure if you've heard of that name before or not, uh, I love reading biographies. He is one of the biographies that I kind of come back to more often than any other biography that I've Uh, surveyed, read, studied, and and chewed on because Mueller was a man of confident praying. He was a man who was educated. Of course, he was a reprobate when he was a young guy, thrown in jail, stole all the time, finally got his act together because he hung out with a bunch of thieves and murderers. And he's like, man, maybe I should actually change my life. God arrested his heart through a Bible study. And long story short, he moved from Germany to London. And in London, he started setting up all these orphanages because there was kids running rampant all over the place with no mommy and daddy and raising all kinds of hell, right? And so he's like, I'm going to love on these kids and he, he opened all these orphanages. However, this man was not someone who's like, hey, I got so much deep pockets that I need, have no need of anybody else. No, he was a man who trusted in God's provision up until the final moment. But he asked with expectation. He says this in our prayers. He says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is not overcoming That we are seeking to overcome God's reluctance. No, He says prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. It's laying hold of His willingness. In other words, if we had stated it another way, we we could say this: true prayer is when we come to God and ask what He wants for our lives, because what He wants for our lives is better than we could ever want or envision. Fact is, brothers and sisters, God really does want us to ask him anything, like a child, uninhibited, even unfiltered, though in respect. Ask him anything, but we must also understand that God isn't a what we might call a vending machine, right? Like kids just watch Aladdin again. He's not the genie, gives us three requests, no mat, no questions asked. Now he loves to lavish us with good things, but he is the one who determines ultimately what is actually good for us. It kind of raises another in question that we need to ask ourselves, and maybe you're already asking this right now or thinking it in your mind. If we are invited into this relationship with our Father in heaven to ask him anything, so long as we ask according to his will, then the question is, How do we know the will of God, right? If we need to ask according to his will, how do we know what his will is? And that is a good question. It's a question we should never stop asking. However, I think there's another question that we need to ask first before we ask what God's will is. And that first question we need to ask is not so much, what is the will of God so I can pray confidently, now the first question is, do I desire God's will? Or if we were to take it a step further, maybe a degree deeper, maybe the question we really need to ask is, am I willing to do God's will if I come to discover his will? Because after all, maybe he presents his will to us and we go, and we pull a Jonah, right? Jonah knew the will of God. Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to, just, I want you to be a, preach a message of repentance, or I'm going to destroy this city. Well, Jonah had been walking with God long enough to know, yeah, I know exactly what you're up to, God. I know that you're a gracious God. I know that you're eager to forgive. You're going to send me there and you're going to save them. Now, if you know the context, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. They were arch enemies of the people of Israel. The Assyrians were known for their brutal, torturous Tactics. They thought of all kinds of ways in which they could cause the most amount of pain when they killed somebody. And they had a lot of people of Israel to practice on. So when God has the audacity, in Jonah's mind, right, to go, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance or I'm going to destroy them, Jonah's like, wait, you're going to save them? No way. No way. And so what does Jonah do? He knows the will of God, and he obviously does not accept the will of God. You know the story. God has his way of turning the boat around, so to speak, gets Jonah back in Nineveh, and then Jonah goes in with the most unloving message of repentance possible, and they all repent, (laughs) and God saves them. And then Jonah's depressed because God is so good and eager to save. We are called, we are invited to pray with absolute confidence. God's like, come to me. If you know that I hear you, I will answer it. I will give it to you so long as you pray according to my will. The question is, brothers and sisters, do we even desire God's will? Because his will may not be aligned to our will. And yet that is what this walk of faith is. It's not that God's will would somehow conform to our will. It is that our will would conform to his. David is able to bluntly and boldly proclaim that He delights himself in the Lord and therefore he is given the desires of his heart because, as you well know, the desires of his heart are because he delights only to do that which is in accordance to the will of God. Commentator David Allen said it well, I think, when he says, we cannot desire God's will in our lives until we are willing to do God's will before we know what it is. He goes on to say, the key to doing the will of God is being willing to do it before we know what it is. And in a sense, what he's saying is we need to be predetermined in our mind that, like, Lord, I'm seeking your will, but I will do whatever it is you call me even before you tell me. In other words, we're not coming to God with conditions. We are surrendering to his conditions. With With the knowledge and the trust and the lived experience of knowing that Whatever God's will is, it is perfect. It is good. And I have everything to gain because of it. And so John proceeds to tell us that we can, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. When our lives reflect a life of obedience, a desire to please Him, and we ask according to His will. I, I love that statement. We know that we, have, that we have the request. That word have is a possessive word. It is saying that we already have it. Grammatically, it's in the present tense, which means this. This is what, this is what John is telling us. You may not have received God's pr- answer to your prayer right now, but God has already answered it. We pray for our needs. And God, who, it, when we are living a life that is seeking to please him and repenting when we, we don't and seeking to honor him and do what's according to his will, we already have the answers. And then God says, now wait. I've already answered it. But I just haven't given you the answer yet. For purpose is only known to me. And what he's inviting us into is in our waiting, it's almost as if he's wondering Are you going to thank me, anyways? Are you going to worship me, even though I have not yet revealed my answer to your prayers? In other words, we are invited into thanking God in advance for how he has already answered our prayers even though we have yet to receive the answer that he has already answered. George Mueller, who I already introduced, was a man of prayer, and he was so convinced that God would answer his prayers because he prayed according to the will of God that one morning he sat all the orphan kids down for breakfast, and he gave thanks For what they were about to eat. Except at that moment, they had nothing to eat. The tables were empty. The plates were in front of the kids, but the tables were empty. And the storehouses were empty. And he sat them down to eat, and he prayed. With expectation that God would continue to provide. And the moment he said amen, there was a knock on the door and the local baker comes and says, I got a lot of leftover goods. Could you use them? Now, stories like this are kind of like, wow, that's amazing. But I would never want to be in that position. Good for Mueller. But I don't want to be in that place of utter dependence on God, because that's hard. That takes all my control away, as if we had any in the first place. You see, Mueller prayed and said amen without any doubt that God would provide, because he promised to do so and then the baker shows up and the kids are fed for one more meal. This isn't the first time, this happened all the time in Mueller's life and ministry. And we look back and go, man, that was an amazing man. No, Mueller served an amazing God. And because he trusted in an amazing God, without wavering, we might conclude today that he was an amazing man. But God invites us into the same dependence today in your life. So let me ask you, IBC family, are you in the habit or the practice of thanking God in advance for how he has already answered your prayer? And as you wait for the answer to your prayer, are you thanking him and worshiping him? You see peace in our in the deepest parts of our soul is not the result of received answers to our prayer. No, peace is the result of knowing that God hears our prayers, that he has already answered our prayers and will reveal the answer when the time is right. And then response, we just say thank you that God is always faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is always faithful. There's a third spiritual truth that we can know, John says. And we can know a life that is victorious over sin. Yeah. You can know a life that is victorious over sin. Now, some of you might be responding maybe in one of three ways. You might be saying, yeah, right. And you say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, maybe a little bit sarcastic because you're like, that sounds like a great message, but it's not the experience of my life. Or where we might say that in response and going, really? Really? Kind of like cold water on a, on a hot day, or I guess it's more like a hot cup of coffee on a cold day in Port Angeles. Or maybe your response is, praise the Lord, I experience that vict- victory in my life all the time. Now, as we have learned already in John's letter, so this is more of a reminder, he doesn't, John doesn't ever teach us that we become sinless in this life, but he does say that sin is no longer the pattern in one's life. For example, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul, John says, my little children... My beloved ones, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but, and by the way, the language grammatically there is that you may not sin, that you would not live in a pattern or lifestyle of continual or persistent sin. But if anyone does not, does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, whereas once all we could do because of our fallen nature was to live a life that was displeasing to God, now as a a child of God with a new nature and a new heart, we can now live a life that is pleasing to God. And what we need to understand is that the power to live a life that is pleasing to God, because again, that's a condition of confident praying, to live a life that isn't pleasing to God is enabled or empowered because God is the one who protects us from the evil one. In other words, we cannot live a life that is pleasing to God just because we try harder. Most of you have already proven that has not worked for yourselves. We cannot live a life pleasing to God just because we want to, though the will is important, but we live a life pleasing to God because Jesus is the one who protects us. Look at verse 18. The second part there, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That he refers to Jesus Christ, and that him refers to all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the one who keeps us. We just sang a song about that, right? He will hold us fast. My ability to remain in the love of God, I sabotage that so easily. But thanks be to God that my salvation is not dependent upon me, it's dependent upon Jesus Christ. He is the one who keeps me. He is the one who guards me. He is the one who protects me from the evil one. This is why Jesus even prayed in John 17, 12. He said, while I was with them, referring to his disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The point is this, and, and we already got to celebrate it together this morning, Pastor Tom mentioned it in the very beginning, Seth Baker already reminded us, brought us to that place again, and here John brings it again to us, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he purchased our salvation. It's done. I love what uh, Steve Blakeman said at the parenting or the marriage seminar on Friday, he says, 2,000 years ago, my sins were forgiven, I just finally discovered it now. When Jesus says, it is finished, the power of sin and death was destroyed. And now, as we've already discussed, Jesus is with his Father making intercession for us. Not just every once in a while when he gets around to it, He is in a persistent, eternal state of intercession until we, like John MacArthur, are home with him. He is our advocate. He is the one who protects us. He is the one who keeps us. He is the one who maintains our salvation. We can be victorious over sin more than conquerors because of what Jesus has finished on the cross. There's a fourth spiritual truth that we can know, and that is we belong to God. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I'm going to kind of breeze through this very quickly just because I have much more to say. Now John isn't saying anything new when he he says this. He already said this in chapter three, verse ten, but basically the whole point is this when it's all said and done, the way you and I understand life and reality is this that is that people, human beings, belong to one of two families. They either belong to God's family or they belong to the family of the devil. That's it. There's no third option. People are either, they either belong to God or they belong to their father, the devil. And it's crucial that Jesus' followers remember and recognize this because there is a global conflict that is controlled by a behind-the-scenes mastermind called the devil. And we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to recognize things for what they are. It's what Paul says in, in Ephesians 6, right? He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against rulers and against powers and authorities and against cosmic powers, against this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that's the real power and nature of our conflict. And so when we, when we turn on the news, which by the way, maybe you shouldn't, but when you do it anyways because curiosity just gets the whole best of you, Right? We must view all the troubles in our world from a spiritual perspective, with spiritual eyes. We must understand that the whole world, John tells us, is under the power of Satan. That's why there's conflict. The reason why there are godless agendas and godless policies is because there is a God, an Antichrist figure that is opposed to everything that is of God. And so, on one hand, that should actually give us a sense of empathy, even for those people in power, because they are actually puppets behind the one who is truly influencing. It doesn't mean that they are not responsible for their actions, but it does mean that there is a powerful force behind them, and that is the devil. But there's another powerful force that is even more powerful than the devil, and that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is actively working. You guys have already read the articles Asbury revival going on like crazy out in there. The Holy Spirit blows as it wills and the Holy Spirit is actively pursuing, saving holistically the hearts of people. So as much as the enemy is trying to steal and to kill and to destroy, Jesus says as he promises to do, and as his spirit is actively doing right now, today, but I have come to give you life, to redeem your life. And I'm not just talking about a salvation that has yet to be revealed. He's talking about life now, wholeness now, healing now. God wants to save you now. Now. We can know also, and this is our fifth spiritual truth, that we belong to God because we abide in Jesus Christ. That's how we know we belong to God. You see, in the beginning of his letter, John, and now he closes his letter by talking about eternal life. And we might ask the question, what is eternal life? Well, eternal life is knowing God and being in Jesus Christ. Abiding in Jesus Christ, knowing him who is true and being in him who is true, this is eternal life. One commentator said said it well. He says, I put no confidence in my confidence. I place no reliance upon my assurance. My assurance lies in the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that whosoever believes in him has everlasting life. I believe this. And therefore, I know I have eternal life. The confidence or assurance we have isn't our feelings. It is the word of God to us, the promises of God to us. The question, brothers and sisters, is this, do you? Have you placed your complete trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you have the absolute guarantee without any doubt that you are a child of the king? Remember, God wants you to know. Not just to have a kind of a good idea, but he wants you to know. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Have you received this gift of eternal life? Have you trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation? Remember at our, our annual celebration, Sue Lotz and Rachel Alton came up here and they had these shirts on that said, Jesus, period. In other words, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the mathematical spiritual formula. The fact is, though, John closes his letter in kind of an unorthodox way, but actually it's very much tied. He says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, why would John tell us these as the last thing he could say? Why would he say? It almost seems out of place, right? By the way, I almost forgot to say something. Uh, little children, please keep yourself from idols. Don't forget that part. No. The reason why John concludes with that final statement is because idols are anything that, can, that make us trust in something other than Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of our soul. John Calvin actually said it well when he says, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. It is in our fallen nature to resurrect all kinds of idolatry in our life. Idols are a a false substitute that deceive us in trusting in something else or someone else other than Jesus Christ. And idols, anything that we turn to for significance, for life, for belonging, for value, for hope, and for joy other than Jesus Christ. And our country is rampant with it. And we have all fallen victim in some way. Tim Keller said it well when he says the ultimate reason for any sin is that something besides Christ is functioning as an alternative righteousness or source of confidence. And it is thus an idol, a a pseudo-savior, which creates inordinate desires. An idol is a pseudo-savior. An idol is that that go-to, right? How do you know if you have potential idols in your life? Well, when you are experiencing something hard... What is it that you want to do in that moment? Maybe it's a little extra glass. Maybe it's veg, veg. Maybe it's gossip, gossip. What is it for you? There's millions of them. But idols always seek to replace an absolute trust in Jesus Christ. They will always sabotage and therefore diminish the certainty or assurance that you can have that you are in fact a child of the King. Maybe it's financial security for you. Maybe it's too focused on your kids maybe it's a focus on everything other than your kids maybe it's your how you look maybe your idols your forever home by the way has anybody ever stayed in their forever home very long maybe it's fame maybe it's how many social media followers you have Maybe it's job status or entertainment or sex. Here's one. Maybe it's your comfort. Comfort is like the thing we, we wake up every day seeking without even consciously thinking about it. We are always striving after those things that make us comfortable. There's nothing wrong with comfort, by the way. What's wrong is how our heart so desperately wants our comfort above or beyond or in place of Jesus Christ. That's when comfort becomes an idol. And so, brothers and sisters, you and I must guard against every false substitute that makes huge promises but always fails to deliver. We must view reality with spiritual eyes so that we can see Jesus as everything, because he is our peace, he is our joy, he is your salvation, him and him alone. I have one more point to make. You may have noticed that I skipped over verses 16 and 17 And I did this because as much as theologians have struggled to interpret water and blood, as Pastor Tom mentioned in last week's message, they are even more confounded by John's reference to sin that does not lead to death versus sin that does lead to death. And I've surveyed a gazillion different perspectives on this, and everybody lands differently on what in the world John is talking about. He apparently writes, and his listeners or readers know what he's talking about, and here we are 2,000 years later going, what in the world? Let me just read these verses here, and we'll draw some application. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, what does John mean when he says that there is a sin that doesn't lead to death, and there, there's a sin that does lead to death, and d- doesn't all sin render us guilty before God? And, and why shouldn't we pray for those who are sinning a sin that leads to death? I mean, shouldn't we pray for everyone that God would redeem or save them? And in all honesty, I'm not quite sure where I land on this. I know as a pastor, I'm supposed to know everything, but uh, these words are somewhat confusing to me. I mean, there's four prominent views that are proposed. Uh, One view is that John is referring to a sin that is just so terrible that God cannot forgive it or will not forgive it, kind of like a mass genocide example. One, another view is that, uh, that John is referring to the un, an unforgivable sin called apostasy. And this is referring to someone who is, has maybe once professed faith in Jesus Christ, but has walked away from the faith. Therefore, obviously, it's unforgivable because they have chosen to walk away and deny Jesus Christ. Um, and while we do believe at IBC that uh, the Bible teaches that there are many who profess faith, and I put that in quotes just so you know, They profess faith, but then eventually walk away from the faith, as we see in Matthew chapter 13. We also don't believe that those who are truly saved will walk away forever. Another view is that this sin is a, really a sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which as Jesus warned the Pharisees, this is a, a, re, a willful rejection of Jesus and his atoning work on their behalf. And so you can't be forgiven when you're adamantly opposed to Jesus and his atoning work. That's what one view is. Another view is, a final view proposed is that this sin leads to physical death for a true believer who persists in sin. In other words, in God's grace, he actually removes a a child, his child, from their physical existence, even though their soul will live on for eternity because they are living a pattern of persistent sin. And as I said, which is it? Everybody came to, landed on a different conclusion. So there we go. But I don't raise this point just to land on a question mark. I raise this because there are some things we do know. There's some things that we can walk away with as difficult as these statements might be. First of all, John doesn't uh, prohibit praying for anyone committing sin that leads to death. He just seems to say that it, it, it may not do much good. So maybe what we are to walk away with is that even though the fact is, we don't really know who this applies to, at least in our context, and so we should never be the one to judge and ultimately can conclude, like, well, that unforgivable sin really applies to you, and so there I'm hands off. No, no, we always assume that God is actively working in the hearts of people no matter what because we don't know what God's intentions are for them. We can't be the one who is the final judge or arbitrator of someone's eternal destiny and so therefore, we pray that God delivers people regardless of how sinful their lifestyle may be. We pray for deliverance. After all, I don't know how many Christians were praying for Saul who later became Paul they probably prayed to be, re, to, to be removed from him, but they did not pray for his salvation, and God had other plans in mind, right? He saved Saul, he became Paul, and became one of the greatest evangelists for the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe we make it a little more personal. Maybe no one expected you to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and yet, here you are. A second truth I think that we can glean from this is this. John does encourage us to pray for believers who are living in sin so that they would be delivered. Let me ask you a question, church family. When you see a Christian either committing a sin or living a lifestyle of sin, What is your response? And what is your thinking? Because you may not actually say what you're thinking. Maybe you're eager to tell a friend because someone's got to know, right? Maybe you begin to think of yourself as like, well, obviously I'm a little more spiritual than this person because... I wouldn't do that. I was reading a book this week, even, um, and I stumbled upon this, and I thought it was apropos for our time here this morning, but Ralph Enloe Jr. says this, when we become aware of or are affected by another person's sin, we tend to move toward one of two poles, slander or sulking. Often we manage to do both. We withdraw from meaningful engagement with the offender and at the same time condemn them in the courtroom of peer conversations. Sometimes even in the cloakroom of a prayer meeting. And yet what does John tell us to do? What does he tell us to do when we see a brother or sister who's struggling in their fight of sin? He says, pray. Pray. Pray for them. Pray for your brother and sister who is deceived by the enemy. Pray for your fellow believer who is enslaved to a sinful pattern. Pray that they would be set free. What does Paul say in Galatians 6.1? Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spirit should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about this. I spent more time thinking about this topic than the entire message. And as I was chewing on it, even prior to the service even starting and moving things around, I couldn't help but wonder, wow, what if? What if IBC developed a reputation that people prayed and didn't condemn when people sinned. What's that? Yeah. Or just imagine, what if the church in Port Angeles, what if the church in Port Angeles began to develop this reputation that Man, my life is a miserable wreck. I know it, they know it, and yet they don't condemn me, they pray for me and they love me. Not because they're just dismissing the sin, not because they're just sweeping under the rug, no, because they want God's best. They are praying that they might be healed. Can you imagine? What if? I wonder how many more people would come out of hiding and into the light so that they may be healed. One final encouragement in this, closely related, that John doesn't actually mention specifically, but is, but is no doubt implied. If you are struggling in your fight against sin, then you need to confess your sin to one another. If you are struggling with sin, then you need to confess to a brother and sister in Christ. And you do that so that you might be healed. I'm convinced more than ever that the reason many of you and many people in general don't experience freedom from sin isn't because you haven't tried to stop it's not because you haven't it's not because you don't want to stop it's because you have not confessed your sin to one another here's the thing sin will always keep its stranglehold on you so long as you keep it hidden Sin will always have its power so long as you keep it hidden. But when you bring it into the light, it loses its power and freedom becomes your new normal. That's why James says in James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. I was, reading, uh, I was listening to another uh, message that Rachel sent me uh, earlier this week and um, he fleshed out this word confess can probably be better understood as not just an admission of guilt, but confess means to literally be fully known by one another. Kind of begs the question, does anybody fully know you? Is there anyone in your life that really knows you? You might be asking this. (laughs) Hold on a second, Aaron. Who wants to be completely known, right? Or better, who's willing to take the risk to be completely known? I mean, you see, it's a whole lot easier to talk to maybe your pastor or to talk to your therapist. It's even actually easier to talk to Jesus because he knows everything anyways, right? The difficult step is talking to one another because that is a death sentence to your reputation, right? Wow, if they knew this about me, they probably would think of me in a different light. If Bob knew everything about me he may not fix my car anymore <laughs> You know it's interesting even especially for, true for pastors in all transparency There's a reason why pastors are being taken out in droves is because in the, the role of a pastor one of the the most difficult scenarios to be in is well, let me just contrast it in this way what keeps pastors in hiding is knowing that when they come forward their whole career is ruined you go back to work on monday we don't know where we're going on monday Because our whole vocation is wrapped up in this. And so then all of a sudden you go, oh shoot, if people really knew me, then guess what? That'd be the end. And then what am I going to do? And you might even be sincere in that hiding, going, like, I don't want to cause an unnecessary disruption in, in the church of Christ. And so, dear God, what do I do? Proverbs 13, or twenty eight thirteen says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You will never be free, brothers and sisters, until you do what Scripture calls you to do in the context of the church, and that is to confess your sin to one another. In fact, the, the, the degree by which you confess your sin to one another is the degree by which you will be healed. When I was in sabbatical last summer, I uh, early on I went to this place called The Refuge. And this place called The Refuge is in Montana, outside of Billings there. And uh, it's a place for ministry people, kingdom-minded people, people that, you know, it's for pastors and even you know high, well-known execs and stuff from all the countries, just to, just to kind of come, and, and it's a place of respite. It's a place to stop. It carves out margin just to do something fun, but it's also an intentional time to come and to kind of do real business with God, and so my brother-in-law invited me out to this place called The Refuge, and at first, a couple weeks into my sabbatical, coming off a of pandemic, coming off a lot of hard conversations and relationships, I was like, Man, actually, what I really want to do is I want to go to the middle of the Olympics by myself and disappear. That's what I want to do. But I was grateful for the invitation to go out to the refuge, and so I went, and uh, overall, it's just a great time. You're fly fishing every day. They provide all the equipment for you. I mean, it's just an amazing time, and the food is spectacular. There's a professional chef. You're with a bunch of guys coming from all over the place. But at that moment, emotionally and spiritually, I was not in a place to want to really open up because I was ragged spiritually, tired. And, uh, and I even wrote, I, you know, every day we had this table time, this intentional time, and it just, it was really unstructured, but it's just kind of like, let's see what this spirit is going to do. And, you know, uh, it, it, the conversation would open up, and it almost sometimes would just be silence, and we'd all be just sitting there looking at each other, and here's a picture of like 25, 30 guys just kind of sitting there, and so what's the spirit saying? Who's going to go first, right? And every night, something profound would happen in the lives or the hearts of some of the men. And there'd be real freedom and and release and healing that took place. I was not in a good place going into the refuge. And so I remember specifically you writing in my journal going, This is great. I'm going to engage, I'm going to participate in praying over people. But there's no way in Sheol that I'm going to actually say anything. (laughs) Can you say that? (laughs) There's no way I'm opening up right now. And that was Thursday morning. And Thursday night was our last table time, and as we're sitting there, and I'm sitting there, do 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 do, and this is great. and Another guy opens up, and he's just undone, and it's just like, wow, thank the Lord for that. Oh, this, this is so good. This is so good. And unprovoked, the Spirit of God told me, it's just like I just started talking, and I said, well, I'll share something. I'm like, oh shoot, here we go. I just, I just vowed this morning not to say anything, and it just all came out. It came out, everything. And you know what? I received mercy and love. And I was released. And I was free. And I didn't even realize I was carrying a burden until the Spirit of God says, No, you've been holding on to this. And I'll tell you specifically what I was holding on to without even knowing it you know, during the whole pandemic and everything, you know, Abby and I were, we were, we were focused on, no, we're going to be forgiving. We're not going to become bitter. We're going to keep trusting the Lord. And, And for the most part we did. And yet I did not realize in that moment that I became increasingly untrusting of people. And at the same time, I wanted intimacy with people, right? I wanted to be close with people, but I didn't know who I could trust. And so I, then I was just like, and I've had conversations with Abby. I'm like, Abby, I don't know if that's a safe person. In fact, I don't know if that's a safe person. In fact, I'm like, I don't know who's safe around here because everything that I've seen, like everything that I say is used against me now. And everything that I supposedly said is used against me. And everything I did say is taken out of context and used against me. So I don't want to talk to anybody because everybody's just going to use this against me. I didn't even realize it until in that moment. And then the Spirit of God is just saying, Aaron, Aaron, I brought you here. And I want to make you free. And He did. And I can't tell you other than the fact that I felt so light <laughs> and so free after years of just kind of this, this weight coming down. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do in you. He wants to make you free. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to save you from your sins, and to give you eternal life, to spend it with him forever. John MacArthur is experiencing that eternal life right now in a brand new body. But he also came to heal you right now. Salvation ultimately is something to be received at one final day. But healing for your soul and for your life is available today, right now. But you, like many of us, we, you won't be free just because you keep your sin hidden between you and God. You will only be free when you confess your sin to one another. I guarantee it because that's what scripture teaches us. Pray with one another. Confess your sins to one another. Be completely known to one another in the context of a church whose no one's got their act together. But by the grace of God, he loves us and he cares for us. And so IBC family, I want you to be free because God wants you to be free. And the means by which you'll be free will not be experienced, will not be felt until you confess to someone else.